Good afternoon and welcome to the City View podcast with me, Andy Sylvester. And it's our last before the Easter break. We work a Sunday to Thursday week on the newspaper, so we'll be enjoying our bank holiday a day early. But we will, I can promise, be in the office on Easter Monday, ready to get back on the streets on the Tuesday. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by Rob Appleby of Kibus Funds, a London-based private equity platform investing in the future of food. We'll talk about supply chains, the quiet revolution in food production underway, and what the war in Ukraine might mean for global food production. First, though, the corporate headlines, and Tesco has warned it's under pressure to keep the cost of the weekly shop in check as it widened profit guidance for the year ahead. UK's largest supermarkets said profit more than trebled last year, posting a pre-tax profit of 2.3 billion. However, Tesco widened its guidance to a 200 million quid uh, gap around 2.5 billion for the coming financial year, a deduction versus previous full year guidance. Boss Ken Murphy said customers were looking critically at where they spend their money, but it was early days yet for behavioural changes. An unwind from the pandemic, said Murphy, meant it wasn't yet crystal clear what behaviours were due to shopping habits returning to normal and what shifts were due to rising costs biting. Pressure on the Bank of England to get serious about tackling historic high inflation has also intensified today, as analysts warn the cost of living could well reach double digits this year. Prices are already rising at the fastest pace since 1992, climbing 7% over the last year, according to figures released by the Office for National Statistics yesterday. But experts think the screws on household finances will tighten in the coming months, with Deutsche Bank predicting the rate of price rises could hit double digits at some point this year due to Russia's war in Ukraine sending energy prices soaring. The gloomy figures extend a streak of the bank failing to predict where inflation is headed. The rate-setting committee thought the cost of living would land a 6% number in March. The bank has a mandate, of course, to keep inflation at just 2%. The activist investor that moved to oust the former Peloton boss John Foley has now rounded on its new chief, claiming he has failed to reform the company's governance and has not made a credible case for it to remain independent. Blackwell's Capital, which holds a 5% stake in the home fitness firm, says Barry McCarthy taking over the top job had done little to resolve the issues it attacked the firm for early uh, this year. The investor has now laid out a series of calls for reform to bosses in a presentation seen by City AM. Peloton, of course, the flag bearer for the stay-at-home stocks, which have seen distinct fall-offs in recent months. And healthcare giant GSK has snapped up Sierra Oncology, California-based late-stage biopharma company focused on treatments for rare forms of cancer. It will acquire the company for around $1.5 billion. Could be a sign of Dame Emma Walmsley's much-talked-about new GSK. Elsewhere, Wizair's CEO told us today the airline would not be hit by staff shortages seen elsewhere in the industry. JP Morgan trimmed back year-on-year profits, and house builders agreed to pitch in for their part of the bill to fix the cladding crisis. Now I'm joined by Rob Appleby of Kibus Funds, a private equity platform investing in the future of food, investing in the technology that will make us not just a little greener, but certainly better fed. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andy. Absolute pleasure. Um, Why don't we start with just, I guess, just outlining really more than anything, this, this revolution, for want of a better word, um, in farming and the fact that we, this, this raft of new technology that's coming in actually changing agriculture quite clearly for the better. I think that's right. Um, and I really view it as follows. The food and farming business and farmers in particular have quite recently been shown to be the villains in this particular plot. Why? Because the UN FAO produced a report um, just before the COP26 last year saying that food and farming is responsible for 36 
percent of all global greenhouse gases. And with that, um, I gather 28% of the plastics that are in our ocean, we waste 30% of the food from farm to fridge, and we're presiding over a system which today is efficient and is global, but also um, caters to about a billion people that are obese or overweight, and almost a billion people that are undernourished and, uh, and, and malnourished. And this system, to my mind, is either fractured or broken. And particularly as we went through two and a half years of COVID and being locked down, we thought a lot about the connection between food and our physical and also mental health and what's happening in Ukraine. And we can probably double-click on that mm. um, during the course of this conversation, but it really has highlighted the different ways in which we should be thinking about the production of food and how we, you know, how we look at food. So that's really um, where I think this revolution is uh, is taking. Well, it is taking place, and this is where I uh, think the drivers come from. Yeah, which of course needs funds, it needs investment, which is is where you come in. Yes. So we developed a, a company that's called Kibbus. Kibbus is the Latin name for food, and and our love, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is food and farming. And as such, we've raised institutional capital and we've invested in what we think is the future of food. And if, as we see happening, the same is happening in sort of new technology and and new production of food as happened 20 years ago in moving from fossil fuels and the energy business that we once uh, knew and loved into something that's more uh, renewable, then I think there are some you know, there are lots of parallels here. Um, the timing, the shape, the size of the, uh, the future of food, I think, is, is the same. And technology really has embraced every part of the food production system as we know it. Increasingly, we're looking at robots to do many of the low-touch uh, labor um, items that we have in food production. We're looking at big data, which... Um, you know, it sounds rather bland, but never before has humankind been able to predict. And now using big data and deep learning and, um, and the likes, we can actually predict what's likely to happen in the future, which is a very powerful mm. tool. Um, I know because I, I see it all around me and, and hear it that uh, there's a, a great deal of debate about alternative meat and whether plants that are dressed up to look and taste and smell and feel like meat um, are a solution to climate change, or whether it's meat that's produced harmlessly without doing harm to animals in a laboratory. And it's not something that mimics meat, but it is actually meat grown from Mm. uh, stem cells and the like. So this is a technology which I think is revolutionizing the meat and dairy business, for example. And then as we look at all the inputs in farming, whether it's you know, herbicides or pesticides or nematicides or fungicides, they're all based on fossil fuels. And I think because you know, the price of petrol at the pumps is, an, is evident uh, that the price of oil and the price of natural gas is going up because of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, mm. um, so too these inputs have got to be reconsidered. So we're looking at biological equivalents to, let's say, pesticides with the use of pheromones, which is a a natural uh, insect chemical produced by insects to attract their mate. 
And if that can be used to disrupt mating, it's a really interesting way of um, of, of monitoring and, and actually um, making sure that pests don't attack our crops. Yeah. So I think some really interesting stuff going on. No, absolutely. Um, but you're also starting to see that revolution. By the way, that was the first time we've heard the phrase disrupting mating on the City AM podcast. So I'm glad you've introduced that. But um, I guess the, the, we're starting to see that shift, that revolution, I suppose, in consumer habits as well, right? Because the the future of the your average Brit's diet seems to be changing over, you know, right as we as we speak, really, whether that's due to cost pressures, whether that's due to more awareness of the impact of of the food and dairy industry, whether that's because David Attenborough was barracking people on Netflix, there is a change, it seems. And I guess is that where, you know, the, the food and dairy industry needs to move to? It's sort of a, a symbiotic relationship between consumer need and the ability of these new producers using tech, using big data, using science, using pharma, you know, pharma, really, um, where they're going. They have to move in, in lockstep, I guess. I think that's right, Andy. Um, Ten years ago, I, I think it was pretty self-evident that you w- went to a supermarket and you looked for milk, and there you could get skimmed or whole milk or various forms of um, of dairy products. Today, there is a raft of alternatives, and even you know, in, in my local supermarket, I can find potato milk. Um, and today, that alternative milk market is about 20% of the entire dairy market and growing at at roughly 20% per annum. And this is the consumer, which I think is leading the charge, making sure that um, what he or she eats is good for them and good for the planet. And coupled with the regulatory changes that we're seeing, um, I have no doubt that this trend is here to continue. And, you know, just shining a commercial light on this. If you looked at what happened with Oatly, the oat milk um, mm. business, um, it was a, a business that had been run for a decade, uh, successfully listed, and there was so much um, demand for those shares that it, it, it is now valued at, at extremely high prices. And I think the same is going on um, for other products in alternative meat, alternative fat. Um, and it's not just limited to beef. Um, we're seeing the same in fish, chicken, pork, and lamb, um, which now can be produced um, alternatively. And I think mm. you know, in both the dairy and the beef business, we're, we are seeing a revolution um, as we speak. And I guess, I mean, this sort of last question before we leave it, but all of these issues have come into quite sharp focus in recent weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's done things to the global supply chain of food that will have huge long-term ramifications. And my instinct is it will move this forward because people will start to look for alternative ways of, of producing food, alternative ways of ensuring supply of food, which is, you know, fundamentally a really important issue that people have, have enough food to feed themselves three times a day. Um, what have you seen, you know, on the front line of this industry over the past, what, what's it been now, six to eight weeks? I think it all starts with the price of the raw materials. Look at the price of gas in this uh, country. It's gone from 60p a thermal unit 
Um, it's traded up above five pounds. It's now trading just above three pounds. Um, one, I think you're going to see a, a continued rise in input prices, continued volatility. It's up and down, you know, very sharply on a, on a day-to-day basis. And that gives rise to a rise in fertilizer prices. And in this country, NPK, as we call it in the farming industry, has gone from a price of roughly 265 pounds a ton to a thousand pounds if you can get it. Wow. Um, and this has led to higher, um, out, higher output. So the, the cost of food is likely to rise. And I was speaking to a local restaurateur who said, who's, who buys his fresh products every day in the marketplace. And he said, listen, everything here has gone up between 20 and 30%. And if it's flown in from uh, from overseas, then it's up probably 300%. And to my mind, it's led to a dramatic change in the way that we should and do focus on food. And I'm not calling for deglobalization, but I'm looking at um, shorter supply chains. I'm looking at local food produced for local consumption. I'm looking at alternative ways in which we can um, uh, fertilize our crops or or, uh, deal with pests and so on, which we've touched on. Um, And I think in no time in living history have we seen uh, a time that is so apparent when we should be thinking about decorrelated assets. I mean, I'm not talking about paper assets like bonds or equities or um, even foreign exchange and commodities. These are volatile. I think they're highly priced and likely to come down um, as these um, these external factors come to play. Mm. Um, but increasingly, I'm seeing the value of land, uh, the value of operating companies that produce cash flow, um, and with land, uh, you know, an inflationary hedge, um, really coming into focus. And, and, you know, food, farming, and the future of food using fewer inputs is really having its day in the sun right now um, as a, a very viable alternative to other asset classes. So um, that, that's that's really what I'm I'm seeing here um, in the front line. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. A real pleasure to hear about what's going on. I think all of us can agree that this is um, worthy work as we as we move towards a sort of slightly greener future. So uh, thanks for joining us, Rob. It's my great pleasure, Andy. Thank you. That was Rob Appleby of Kibus Funds. And that's all from me, as I say, and all from all of us at City AM ahead of the Easter break. Have a wonderful time and we'll see you on the other side.